I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, uh, a high class poetry lover. <laughs> and I am Dean Detloff, a low class poetry admirer. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, you heard it here this week on the Magnificast. We're starting our new arc that we will definitely follow through to the end on <laughs> um, uh, poetry and revolutionary politics. Um so we're going to ease our way into the arc uh, and talk about Ernesto Cardinal a little bit more. Uh, he's been a sort of reoccurring character on the show. Um, well, he's not a character. He's a real life person. But we <laughs> talked about him before, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, uh, Ernesto Cardinal, um, you'll remember him from the Gospel in Solentaname. Um, but uh, he was a Catholic priest. And also he ended up being the Minister of Culture for the Sandinista government. Um, he was also a really interesting poet, so we're going to get into all of that. But before uh, we do that, we are going to have to look at some um, free-form, avant-garde, really high-concept poetry that um, I found on reddit.com slash r slash Christianity. That's um, right. Dina, you up for this challenging piece? I'm ready. I, I'm ready to just let these words wash over me. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So here is my first Reddit poem from our Christianity. Uh, okay, so it was posted four months ago by a user. Um, the title is this. Now that the great deception is basically here, how do you talk to your secular friends about it? Right, right. Quick background. I was refined by fire in my mid-20s after being an atheist from age 13 to 23-ish. I'm fully dedicated to Christ now, and I will never turn back. The majority of my friends are atheists or agnostic or just don't care. Now that the alien disclosure is knocking at our door, which I believe is the great deception spoken of in Revelation, Nephilim disguises greys or their You said the offspring. alien disclosure? I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just want to make sure uh, that part right. Yeah, no, no, no. That's an important, uh, important uh, yeah, detail here. The alien disclosure. Yeah, it's right. knocking at our door. Okay, yeah, um, got it. And it's what was discussed in Revelation, where the Nephilim are disguised as greys or their offspring. Right, so right. Try to keep up here, Dean. It's already happening. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm that. Okay, so um, in light of all of that, how do you even talk to secular people about this? <laughs> I'm used to being ridiculed, and I even find joy in it sometimes. But now that it's coming down <laughs> to the wire, I'm seriously concerned for my secular friends. Any advice, ideas, or experience would be much appreciated. So, Dean, what do you think about this? How do you talk to your secular friends about um, Nephilim and aliens? Like, what's your sort of go-to strategy on this one? Hmm, that was a tough one. When I talk to my secular friends, I just say, especially if I want to talk about aliens, I just say, look around you. And I try to see what that <laughs> gets, what that elicits. Yeah. And, and, they us and then they do it, and then what happens? Usually they look around you and yeah, they say, I, I see what you mean. Things are pretty wild. I, I hadn't stopped to think about it. Um, but now that you say that, you know, you, you can't come at these things in biblical ways. You just have to uh, allow the, the natural theology of the world itself to uh, make this clear. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> that's a good approach. You don't don't try to tell them about Revelation. Don't mention the Nephilim. Just be like. Look, there's a there's a guy, and he looks like he's wearing an Edgar suit over there. <laughs> yeah, just look around. He won't stop asking for sugar water. <laughs> That's right. Uh, is that Will Smith? Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. So that's good. You don't don't even get into the Bible. Just be like, hey, look at that guy. Look at that pug that's talking to somebody over there. It's definitely an alien. Yeah. Look, the Lord has endowed us with reason, and uh, we can appeal to that reason if we just talk to other people and uh, get them to look around. Uh, they'll figure it out. That's right. Uh, God has given us two books: uh, the Bible and <laughs> um, the aliens hiding uh, in human disguises amongst us. That's right. Those big books. Um, I found a, a really good uh, poem for you also, Matt. Oh. Uh, thanks for that one. Yeah, um, of course. <clears throat> this one's kind of a, an advice poem, if you will. A, a poem uh-huh. that, that invites you to offer advice. Um, it was posted six months ago, so I'm not really sure where it has gone. We should ask for an update. But the title is simply Random Question About Going to Church. I was hoping to get an opinion on. And okay. perhaps uh, you might be able to um, offer that opinion. Here it goes. So basically, I don't currently have a church I regularly go to, and it started getting to me that I haven't been and have been wanting to go for a while now uh, that I haven't been going anywhere. Sort of a a mixed up parenthetical in there. Uh, I wanted to start looking for a new church in my city. The problem is I don't exactly have a working car, hence why I haven't been in a while. I get around the town and to work via an electric skateboard. What I was hoping to get everyone's thoughts on was about trying the new places with the board, such as, would it be weird bringing a board into the churches? If it's far away, I'll have to bring a backpack with a charger, etc. I was just curious of thoughts on the matter. Uh, So, Matt, uh, really important to get your opinion on this here. Uh, Would it be okay to bring not only the skateboard, but also a backpack, a charger, etc. when visiting a new church? Yeah, well, um, this question... I mean, it's an easy one. Absolutely, it's okay. It's rad as hell to ride a skateboard anywhere. Um, People are going to think you're very cool. You're very technologically savvy. You're environmentally conscious. Um, They're going to think that you're an all-around cool person for riding this dang skateboard. It's just shredding your way up into the pews. People are going to love it. They're going to go crazy for the skateboard. The thing is, this is an electric skateboard. Uh, Much harder to kickflip. Much harder to do an ollie. Very hard to impress people with. Yeah. Um, and he's going to have to charge it during the service. Yeah. I don't see a problem with that. Um, you know, the church I go to, there's a guy that often, um, I guess every time I've been there, he charges his phone during the service. <laughs> and I think that's okay. <laughs> and if, yeah. if it wasn't a phone, if it was a skateboard, I'd think, damn, that's so cool. I wish I had that cool electric skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> True, okay, so maybe that's a con, though. Maybe it would cause other people to covet his skateboard, and that mm-hmm. wouldn't be good. Right, right. You're asking all the right questions now. That's right. Um, I I admire this, though, right? Like, you don't have a car, and you need to get to church. Um, you're hearing the call. Come, now's the time to worship. And you just have to get on your board and get right up there. And I think it's good. I think you should try it. The, the other part here, too, is that, um, okay, so you go to this church, and um, the older folks see you riding the skateboard. They're going to immediately see you, a young adult, on a skateboard, and you're going to be the youth pastor so fast. They're going to just push you right into that that back room with the uh, tooth the tooth and nail uh, poster on the wall. And you're going to have to deal with these kids. And you will have to take the backwards hat right off of the skeleton of the previous youth pastor <laughs> and put it right on yours. Uh, kind of like a, a horrible version of the Santa Claus. That's right. <laughs> Holy shit, Santa Claus, but with youth, pa- youth pastor is very funny. I would yeah, watch in- that movie. <laughs> instead of getting a, a giant beard, you just get like a tiny goatee soul patch, um, and you get one ear pierced. And every day you try to take the piercing out and you shave, and every day it comes right back. <laughs> That's right. Um, you uh, instead of but instead of uh, inheriting a weird like Mrs. Claus, though, you become perpetually unmarried, and everyone in the church <laughs> will be like, oh, "When you getting married?" Yeah, you do also get um, a full sleeve of tribal tattoos uh, that are suggestive of a certain past that you don't really know about and would prefer not to talk about. And so you do have to cover those up on Sunday. That is good. Um, so if someone from uh, like Clean Flicks or if Kirk Cameron's <laughs> agent could get at us, we will sell this movie idea to you in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's right. It's called The Youth Pastor. <laughs> oh. Too bad. I mean, like, uh, too bad the youth pastor doesn't deliver Christmas gifts because then it does take a lot of the uh, narrative momentum out of the story. Um, mm. I don't know what he'd be doing, other than just kind of attending to youth group. 
Um, I mean, it's sort of the uh, the reverse Santa Claus if you think about it, because he's busy every single day of the year at church doing uh, church related mm. things, and then on Christmas, um, I guess he still has to work even extra. Yeah, all of it, right? Yeah, I love it. I want that movie to happen. Great. All we need to find is uh, an actor who's willing to be a recent divorcee and uh, willing to put on that hat. I think that Kirk Cameron could still pull it off. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, he would just have to make extremely sure to kiss only his wife if ever there's an on-screen kiss. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, uh, maybe not. I did see a picture of him not too long ago, and he is looking a little bit on the old side. <laughs> not, not the uh, not the Buck Williams we all remember from right, uh, right. the good old days. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, um, those are two really good poems to kick off this uh, art or this arc, excuse me, uh, about poetry. Uh, we decided to do this in part because we have been reading a bunch of Ernesto Cardinal poems and they're all very good. And we've just been sharing them between each other. So we thought, why not share them with some other folks as well? Um, but also because getting into poetry, I think, gives us a different angle on a lot of stuff we talk about on the show where I was talking about politics, political economy, economics, all that kind of stuff. Um, we talk about books and sometimes philosophy or whatever. Uh, but rarely do we really sit down and talk about like the arts that much. And uh, maybe for the better, I guess we'll find out. Uh, but it's something that we've been trying to figure out. And it's also interesting for Marxism and Christianity, because both of those traditions have uh, a really fascinating kind of um, uh I don't know. They they produce a lot of interesting poets and, and art. So Cardinal is the one who I think synthesizes all this stuff, uh, in my opinion, better than anybody else. Um, and so we thought we would take a look. Uh, Cardinal, I don't know how to introduce him better than uh, what we've already done in the past, which is to start out with kind of a super abbreviated uh, biography. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about his um, style of poetry. Uh, does that sound good? Yeah, I think so. Okay, here's a super abbreviated version, and then I'll give a little bit more in de uh, detailed version. He was a priest that uh, got involved in the Sandinista Revolution, and then he became not so much a priest, um, and he became the Minister of Culture. And while he was doing all of that, he wrote a lot of poetry and then taught a lot of people how to write poetry. There. That's the big, that's like the big <laughs> sell on Ernesto Cardinal. Um Okay, but a little bit more granular than that. Um, yeah, he was born in 1925. He was born in Granada. He's involved in all kinds of like radical politics uh, as a youth. Um, there was no uh, strong youth pastor to, dis to dissuade him from that. Um, <laughs> yeah, growing up, he like you know he went to university and studied literature. He went to the United States in 1957 and uh, went to a little place called Gethsemane, Kentucky, and met um, you know everyone's favorite guy everyone's favorite Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, and studied uh, theology with him there. Um, so then after that, uh, people were actually kind of surprised that he was interested in theology because he didn't seem like a sort of religious sort of guy, but then he was. Um, after that, he traveled to Colombia and got really into Camilla Torres because uh, that was all going on at the same time. Uh, Camilla Torres, great person. Check him out. <laughs> Google his name if you don't know who that is. Um, and then after that, sort of inspired by Taurus and uh, Merton and everything else kind of weighing on him, um, he became a priest in 1965 when he was 40 years old, which is a, um, I don't know, I I would, I think, a late in the game transition to priesthood. But what do I know about literally anything? Um after that, he uh, ended up going to a little, uh, like a little place called Solentaname, um, which uh, you'll remember from the Gospel in Solentaname episode, where um, basically we read a book called the Gospel in Solentaname, and he is just like in this village with some like farmers, and he's reading the gospel with them in light of an impending revolution, and um, the <laughs> the folks that are all reading the gospels with him are like, <laughs> Mary's a communist. <laughs> uh, that's their take. It's a great one. Um, okay, so we can talk a little bit more about Solentaname in a minute, but Dean, does that seem good so far? Am I missing anything that is important? No, that's good. Uh, maybe one kind of interesting piece of trivia to add that's fun. Um, so when Cardinal went to Solentaname to uh, be a priest and establish a community there, Thomas Merton was also supposed to come uh, to Solentaname with him and be part of it, but the church said no, uh, which is really fascinating because history probably would have been extremely different if that was the case for both of those individuals. Uh, but yeah. it shows you a little bit like how close they were. And it also tells you maybe a little bit more about even somebody like Thomas Merton. 
that's wild. I wonder what would have happened. Either Thomas Merton would have tempered Cardinal's sort of revolutionary impulse, or uh, Merton's anti-communist uh, streak would have maybe dissipated or something. Who knows? Yeah, hard to say. Uh, yeah, that's a, a good speculative fiction. Uh, that would also be great featuring Kirk Cameron. Um, just <laughs> kidding. It would be bad. Um, yeah. So in um, in one book of poetry um, by Ernesto Cardinal, one of my one of my faves, it's called Flights of Victory. Um, one of my faves is actually uh, is a, it's an easy one. I don't actually read poetry whatsoever, um, and reading this book was uh, reading uh, this book and another book by a cardinal was really uh, an enriching experience. Where now I've uh, cultivated a new interest in reading poetry. Um, <laughs> but anyways, in the intro to the book, it kind of lists um, some uh, helpful biographical context for uh, cardinal's life, and there's a bit in here about Solentaname that I think is really helpful to um, read because it sort of contextualizes like what is going on um, with cardinal at the moment and like what's going on in Nicaragua and with the folks in Solentaname and with like cardinal's life. So I'm just gonna read this little excerpt here that gives you a, a bit of like context for what's happening. All right, so uh, it says, The first phase of the Solentaname years was marked by a Mertonian adherence to the principle of nonviolent opposition to all forces preventing a realization of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. Um, that's not surprising if you remember the Merton episode and uh, other episodes where we talk about Thomas Merton um, and sort of pacifism. However, circumstances were to alter the situation. First, there was the general development of the Sandinista movement throughout Nicaragua in the late 1960s. Second, there was an earthquake in 1972 and the attendant intensification of Somosista exploitation and oppression. As for Cardinal himself, uh, he took a trip to Cuba in 1970, and that may be seen as a decisive moment that would result in a qualitative transformation of his mission in Solentaname and uh, of his political and poetic stance. So um, in like the late 60s, early 70s, all of these um, events are kind of, uh, yeah, weighing in on the Solentaname community and specifically Cardinal, where, you know, he's this person that's been shaped and studied with Thomas Merton. Um, you know, he has a sort of commitment to nonviolence. Uh, but then, I don't know, some things start shifting and uh, maybe nonviolence is not quite such a, um, you know, not as easy as an idea as it was when he was in Kentucky. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he's, uh, in Sultaname, um, the Somoza regime sucks and is awful and, um, doing all kinds of terrible things. And then he goes to Cuba and Cuba is a big deal for, uh, Ernesto Cardinal. So you can read about his trip to Cuba in his book in Cuba. Um, it's pretty neat. Uh, it's not one I've read completely, but I've read some excerpts of it and I liked what I saw. Um, so, uh, on Cuba, this is what Cardinal says. I never considered the Cuban Revolution to have lacked a Christian basis, but rather that this revolution was the Gospels put into practice, and what had to happen was for Christians in Cuba to understand this revolution. Um, this is uh, an aside. According to Robert Pring Mill, Cardinal, after his trip to Cuba, uh, believed the new people that are going to be born would be a people made up of the new men whom Che Guevara predicted, but the values of their communism would, would coincide with the earliest of Christians. So, um, the the trip to Cuba for Cardinal is one where he is like really seeing sort of like the value of like a revolutionary society and a revolutionary project, and also like the um, the ways that you know the values of the Cuban Revolution, um, you know what they sought to accomplish, are not all that different than um, what Christians want, and that was like a a pretty big moment for him. Um, so then uh, later after the trip to Cuba, you know Car Cardinal comes back a little bit more radicalized. Um, he, uh, you know, ends up touring Nicaragua and teaching people poetry and he's writing poetry and all this kind of stuff. Um, but by 1977, this is sort of like um, toward the tipping point of the revolution, uh, the Solentaname commune basically all turned Sandinista. And uh, many of the people, you know, they actually joined the fighting in the revolution. Um, a lot of the folks that you uh, that you meet in the gospel in Solentaname, they go on to go fight and you find out, you know, what happens to them later. They most of them died or they went to prison or whatever. Um, but after, uh, I don't know, a huge sequence of events, um, many of the Sandinistas from Solentaname uh, were, yeah, killed, imprisoned, tortured, etc. Um, and in the end, the Somoza regime actually destroyed Solentaname, the community, the buildings, everything. Um, except for the church, which uh, Somoza turned into a barracks, which is not what you want to see. Um, but in the end, uh, the Sandinistas won out. In 1979, um, they ousted Somoza, and um, the Sandinista government uh, ruled the country. 
um, Cardinal was made into the minister of culture. He was like the 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 cool poet that everyone knew, and um, he was kind of put in charge of, um, yeah, I don't know, figuring out what the the revolutionary culture of this like new society might look like. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's writing poetry throughout all of this. But what's really interesting is this um, pre-revolutionary time. In this post-revolutionary time, uh, Cardinal has to kind of like negotiate the weird sort of countercultural vibe of his poetry. You know, like I get it. I, I guess like um, before the revolution, writing poetry about like how much Somoza sucks and all of this like you know revolutionary energy makes a lot of sense. But then after the revolution, like what do you do? Like you know the the enemy has been defeated, and like how do you sort of build something up after that? Yeah, there are some very funny uh, poems that Cardinal writes actually about becoming the minister of culture and how it's actually kind of boring. <laughs> like the the countercultural side ends up becoming, uh, you know, that's the thing that he like cut his teeth on writing about really interesting wild stuff. But now he's going to meetings and meeting like ministers in other parts of the government or meeting ambassadors and things like that. There's like a poem where he talks about uh, wandering through town and like seeing this cat and wanting to think about that cat in a poetic kind of way. And then all of a sudden he's like at the meeting and he can't think about it anymore. Uh, so that's very funny. <laughs> he sort of has like a poem about not being able to do the poetry he wants. Um, he also talks about it in interviews a lot. He'll say things like, uh, yeah, I really want to be doing a lot more poetry, but it turns out when you work for the government, you don't have a lot of time. Um, so that's also very funny. Uh, just kind of picking up a couple other things to fill out the, uh, biography. Salentaname, even when Cardinal was there, uh, was basically transformed into an arts community. It's a, an archipelago of islands in Nicaragua. And uh, Cardinal and others helped to develop a whole aesthetic uh, before the revolution, where people were getting in touch with uh, indigenizing their own artistic processes and thinking through uh, different ways of making people's art prior to the revolution, which is also one reason that they sort of caught the ire of the Somoza regime. Um, Cardinal also hung out in Costa Rica for a bit when the revolution was pretty intense, uh, and he sort of operated as like an outside ambassador for the Sandinistas, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, but yeah, by the time he ends up in the, the saddle of being a minister of culture, uh, he has to pull a lot of interesting things together. His experience in Salentaname, his own work as a poet and a, an artist in his own right, uh, his commitment to revolutionary politics and also to the kind of Christian community that he's part of. Um, oh, and maybe one last thing, too. Uh, one of The reason that he's in Cuba when he writes the book on in Cuba is uh, for a, a big poetry event. Uh, and it's a great book to read, actually, if you're interested in revolutionary poetry, because A, you get a, a look into the poetic culture of Latin America um, and how it's sort of being cultivated in a place like Cuba. But you also get a lot of poems that Cardinal re reproduces and reprints in that book itself, uh, some by Christians, some by revolutionaries, etc. So that's like a neat resource if you're kind of looking for more of that. Um, but yeah, so Cardinal, one thing we could say about kind of turning a little bit to his poetry is throughout all of this, even all the way back uh, before he comes to Salentaname as a priest, he starts to develop an interesting modernist form of poetry uh, that he calls exteriorismo. Um, and actually, Matt, I'll let you explain it a little bit because um, you pulled out a really neat uh, passage about that from one of the introductions to the books that we were reading. Yeah, um, exteriorismo or exterior poetry. Um, Cardinal sets this up as like a poetic aesthetic that's like in opposition to subjective poetry. Not that like subjective poetry is bad. Um, we'll we'll read some stuff later about how you know all poetry was sort of allowed and was cool in Nicaragua. But exteriorismo was like um, was the aesthetic vision that um, that Cardinal kind of used. Uh, I think a, a lot to fall back on. Like when he was teaching people, this is sort of the way he taught people to, to write poetry. So uh, this is a quote from Cardinal. Exteriorismo is a poetry created with images of the exterior world, the world we see and sense, and that is in general the specific world of poetry. Exteriorismo is objective poetry, narrative and anecdote made with elements of real life and with concrete things with proper names and precise details and exact data, statistics, facts, and quotations. In contrast, interiorist poetry is a subjectivist poetry made only with the abstract or symbolic words. Rose, skin, ash, lips, absence, bitterness, dream, touch, foam, desire, 
shade, time, blood, stone, tears, night, all those great words. Um, uh, Cardinal goes on and he says, I think that the only poetry which can express Latin American reality and reach the people and be revolutionary is exteriorist. Poetry can serve a function to construct a country and create a new humanity, change society, make the future Nicaragua as part of the future great country that is Latin America. So, um, it, it, maybe this still this probably still seems pretty abstract um, if you've never read an Ernesto Cardinal poet, poem before. But um, once you do start reading them, this makes complete sense. Um, yeah, it's kind of like documentary style poetry a little bit, but short, um, a lot shorter. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It just uses like you know all of the <laughs> exact details of, of something. It, it comes across like. Um, yeah, I mean, really historically oriented, um, uh, but also like paying attention to, um, you, you know, not just like the objective sort of facts, but, um, but a little bit more like observational and, um, experiential maybe is a good word. Um, I don't know, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it's really fascinating because it puts together this exteriorist, uh, motif of just picking up stuff that's hanging out right around you. Um, and Cardinal like sets that off against this sort of subjective metaphor building thing. Uh, but when you read Cardinal's poetry, it's also in the surface of, of really building a utopian vision and you certainly wouldn't miss, uh, all kinds of, um, fantastic and, and wild kind of images that he pulls from, but that's what makes Cardinal's poetry so fascinating. So when he, he has like a very long, uh, poem about the universe, for instance, and, in it, he plays with biblical themes and stories about the universe, but also with uh, like science and physics and astronomy. And he's pulling those in. He pulls in certain political uh, events that have happened in his own life. He's kind of drawing all these things together. So it's not that exteriorismo has no sort of imagination or anything like that, uh, but it's almost like it's elevating all these other things that he sees around him into this uh, imaginative um, process of thinking about uh, a different kind of future, a different political future, which I think is really fascinating, right? Like, uh, it's it's not that his poetry is devoid of interior speculation or anything, because you'll find plenty of that, um, but it's in this kind of political mode all the time. Yeah, a lot of the, and a lot of like the sort of beautiful parts of, I think, uh, Cardinal's work comes through the juxtaposition of these two different things, especially, mm -hmm. um, so in one of the books of poetry that we read is called Pluriverse. And in that one, he's always, uh, you know, juxtaposing like what's happening in Nicaragua, you know, like what, what happened at the, you know, the, the tomb of the gorilla or whatever, but with like the, the, um, the machinations of the universe. And, you know, these like, these are really interesting things to kind of draw together, but he does it in this pretty interesting way. I like it a lot. Um, well, maybe instead of just trying to keep describing it, um, like two, uh, dumb guys on a podcast, <laughs> uh, do you want to just like read one? Do you want to read one? That, that might be a good yeah. idea, a good intervention yeah. in this uh, rambling uh, explanation of what this is. <laughs> yeah, that would help illustrate it for sure. All right, let me read this one. It is from, this is just the end of a poem that is called Mystical Vision of the Letters FSLN. Uh, FSLN, by the way, is the abbreviation for the Sandinista uh, National Liberation Front. Um, so that's the revolutionary organization that he was part of. Uh, this comes from a collection that's called Flights of Victory that Matt mentioned earlier. Uh, we should say, too, a bunch of this stuff is available on archive.org. You can just check it out for free, by the way. Uh, but here's the end of it. So to set it up, uh, he talks earlier in the poem about having a conversation with a child about um, these letters that are on a hill that are an advertisement for a, a company. Um, and then later on, he... Uh, He's kind of moving through what it was like to live after the revolution. So he says this. For a year now, from many Managua streets, instead of those letters on the hill, we see others, FSLN. And I many times also recall the child's words with joy. It was a Sunday at noon with an overcast sky, and there are days when one asks for a sign. Very intimate solitudes. Like when Teresa of Lazou, upon her deathbed, would feel doubts about whether God existed. Then from the car, I looked at the large letters on the hill, and from within, God spoke to me. Behold what I did for you, for your people, that is. Behold those letters and never doubt me. Have faith, man of so little faith, you jerk. Uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I think it's like really illustrative of so many things in Cardinal. Like there's this real religious wrestling, there's a real political wrestling, uh, but there's also a, a big sense of humor involved in a lot of Cardinal stuff. Um, also a, a very sort of uh, intimate sense of, of tragedy and sadness too. But uh, these yeah. moments of humor and sarcasm really poke through. Uh, and I like it because you can see him drawing from the immediacy of his surroundings uh, pulling in all kinds of different metaphors and letting them kind of bump up against each other. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's this real mixture of like the sacred and the profane that I think is really, uh, I don't know, like a key marker of all the poems that at least I've read so far in his work. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, and, and two in that you see like Cardinal working out this, like, you know, that, um, the Sandinista government is like, you know, some not like divinely inspired in like a, a weird way, but you know, that's kind of his interpretation of the events that like, how could this like revolutionary movement have won had it not been for like God or whatever. Uh, so, so I guess even, even there you do see kind of the, the words that Cardinal used to describe exteriorismo ring true, right? That it's, it's there to in, in some way construct a country, create a new humanity, change society, make a future, etc. Um, and I guess like that's something that I think is really interesting in um, exteriorismo and in Cardinal's work, but um, it, more interesting too because you know he would he would teach people like everyone how to do this. This is like this was kind of right. like one of his big pushes. He taught you know peasants and farmers and workers, and um, in, in Flights of Victory it even says um, there's, there's a line that's like very funny. I guess I should have pulled it out, but I didn't. Basically, the idea though is that um, Nicaragua was the only country uh, to publish the poetry of its police. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> like Cardinal is like. Like, listen, you're going to live here and you're going to learn how to do poetry. <laughs> um, but I, I guess like, um, you know, thinking about the the socialist project of Nicaragua and the Sandinistas um, and this sort of, sort of aesthetic vision that um, Cardinal has, I, I, I don't know, I can't really help but think of, um, uh, you know, what what it, its relation might be to like socialist realism or something like that. I mean, they're completely different aesthetically, um, but they have some type of resonance. Um, so I, I don't know. This is a deep, a deep cut uh, to a really weird episode we did. I don't know, a hundred years ago, um, where we <laughs> talked about like Christian kitsch, and um, right. we read a little bit of the Total Art of Stalinism by Boris Groys. Um, is that right? Am I getting this episode yeah, right? Okay, that's right. <laughs> I had forgotten about it until you just mentioned it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes the past episodes we've done seem like a really weird fever dream. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that was also the John McNaughton episode, which <laughs> is basically a fever dream. I love that. Uh, John McNaughton. I still get emails from that guy constantly. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, so I, um, to kind of like, I don't know, I want to investigate the the feeling I had a little bit more. So I went back to the Boris Groys book about... Uh, socialist realism and i found this quote at the very end and i must have underlined it last time we read the book so i just went back to it um and this is uh groy is talking about the russian avant-garde and socialist realism and kind of how it didn't do quite what it should have done so this is what groy says uh russian avant-garde art understood itself not as a critical art but as a powerful art able to shape the fate of the russian population and of the whole world socialist realism did not seek to be liked by the masses it wanted to create masses that it could like. Generally, the public gets the art it deserves, but socialist realism tried to produce the public that would deserve it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is like a really funny thing. So, I mean, in the larger story of socialist realism in Russian avant-garde, I mean, there's a lot going on. But basically, like, in the earlier part of the Russian Revolution, there were all these, like, wild, um, like, constructivist sort of artists doing um, paintings, like, look up. Kazmir Malevich or somebody, um, you know, who's very famous for uh, painting a, a big black square on a piece of uh, paper. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> but towards the, you know, in the Stalinization of uh, Russia, um, some like really strict sort of rules about art kind of came into play called socialist realism. Um, and it was the, it was, you know, a way to construct a, an aesthetic for the public uh, to make a, a type of art that would, um, you know, build the public that should enjoy the art. But what Grace is, the argument that Grace is making in the book is that like, that's the wrong way. <laughs> that's the wrong way to do it. Um, you shouldn't make art that makes people that will like the art. You should do it in a different way. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way because uh, in, in some ways the the aims of exteriorismo and socialist realism is kind of similar, right? Like uh, 
um, Cardinal says that, you know, it's about constructing a country and creating a new type of people or whatever. And socialist realism does the same thing. But I think the, the interesting thing that's different between these two types of revolutionary art is that, um, you know, exteriorism has a new person in mind, but that person's produced through writing the poetry themselves rather than just adopting a forced aesthetic. Like, you know, socialist realism is about like a, a big mural on the side of your factory about, you know, like two people shaking hands or whatever. And you're supposed to think that's awesome. Um, but exteriorism <laughs> is different because it's like putting the, you know, the actual people in, in like all of the people into the process of making the poetry themselves. And I don't know, you can't help but be changed. Uh, you can't help but be changed when you're like, you know, making a piece of art. And I think that's kind of an interesting uh, distinction and interesting ap approach to art and, um, and socialist kind of situations. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting interviews floating around with Cardinal about his own work as Minister of Culture and uh, the kind of, I don't know, things he's trying to foster there. Uh, but there are a couple from 1986 that I found that were really fascinating, and he deals with socialist realism in them. Uh, here's just a couple to kind of help continue these train, this train of thought that you're developing. Uh, in one of them, uh, Cardinal says, it can be said that there's a certain tendency in Nicaragua to produce socialist realism, but we don't favor it, and it's not officially approved because we have seen that it has created bad art. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the official line clearly expressed by the leaders of the revolution is that there is no official line on art or literature. Uh, that's a very important distinction. Uh, not the kind of thing that you would get in the Soviet Union, that's for sure. Um, I'll read uh, one more kind of longer co quote that draws this out too, <clears throat> where he says, the interviewer says, has the practice of the revolution given birth to a new cultural and artistic aesthetic? And Cardinal says, no, nothing new has come into existence in that sense. In painting, for example, there are all types of inclinations. There are abstract painters, realist painters, surrealist painters, and hyperrealists. One could say that the only kind of art not cultivated here is socialist realism, not because it's pro it's prohibited, but because they, the artists, don't like it, and because it naturally isn't imposed upon them. The same thing occurs in literature. We have different inclinations, even clashing among ourselves, often creating literary polemics in the newspapers of the revolution. There are some who cultivate hermetic, oneric, surrealist poetry based purely on metaphor, completely subjective, and there are others, myself among them, for example, who prefer a poetry that is more accessible to the people with an understandable message on current themes or of interest to the public that's connected to our reality. But all types of literary inclinations from one extreme to the other are cultivated here. The same can be said of other arts and music as well. There's no political music, protest music, social song, and or there is, sorry, political music, protest music, social song, and also there's other romantic music, and there's another much preferred by the youth, whatever the latest fashion is. So that's kind of a long quote, but it just gives you an idea of uh, even what Cardinal's position as the, you know, the governmental figure responsible for uh, the culture of that country, um, the position is to allow lots of different styles to uh, proliferate and to think that you know, there might be something even revolutionary about that, about allowing that to happen. Yeah, I think it's good. This is why Ernesto Cardinal was a good Ministry of Culture. <laughs> um, well, what if we read another poem? Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, as we're doing this, I'm thinking back to all of the poetry readings I've ever been to, and um, people who read poetry are good at it. Um, they have a specific <laughs> sort of voice and way they do it. And listen, I'm not good at it, so sorry. Um, this is a poem from uh, the book Pluriverse. Uh, that it's a collection of a bunch of different sort of other books that Cardinals wrote. Um, and this poem is towards the end, and it's really fun. Um, it's called Give Ear to My Words, parentheses, Psalm 5. Okay. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Hear my groans. Listen to my protest. For you are not a God who is a friend of dictators, nor a supporter of their politics. Nor are you influenced by their propaganda, nor do you associate with any gangster. There's no honesty in their speeches, nor in their press releases. They talk of peace in their speeches while they increase their war production. They talk of peace at peace conferences and secretly prepare for war. Their lying radios blare all night long. Their desks are piled with criminal plans and sinister documents, but you will protect me from their plans. They speak through the mouth of machine guns. Their flashing tongues are bayonets. Punish them, O oh God. Foil their politics. Mix up their memos. Block their programs. At the hour of the alarm siren, you will be with me. You will be my refuge on the day of the bomb. You bless the righteous who don't believe in the lies of their ads, nor in their publicity and political campaigns. Your love surrounds them like armored tanks. 
so what I like about this is that it is like a mixture of current events um, and observations about like um, what it's like to sort of be on this uh, national stage of diplomacy, but it mixes all of that in with the, um, the rhetoric and vibe of the Psalms. I think that's really fun. Um, it's, it's really playful on the one hand, like um, you're taking a bit of the Bible and sort of like hijacking it or deterring it maybe in like a, a weird situation kind of sense. Uh, and you're making it say something uh, equally true, but just a, a different sort of feel to it. And, uh, and I think it's a really, um, yeah, I mean, it's accessible in the sense that it is, um, you know, using the, the form and structure of the Psalms, which is something that, you know, people who go to church would be familiar with, but then it's playing with the, um, the, the rhetoric and the, um, like the, like the tempo of the words and it's, you know, making them apply to the, to the situation in Nicaragua in that time. And, uh, it's cool. Yeah, that's right. And it also is like directly mirroring the message of Psalm five in itself. Right. Um, yeah. which is really wild. Uh, yeah. Cool thing that he does. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a couple other interesting things that I found in, uh, interviews. Um, I want to read one that I think is really fascinating that I think helps continue to draw some of this out. And then maybe we could read another poem, uh, as we're getting toward the end here. Uh, but the interviewer here asks, what is the role of the artist in the struggle for a people's art? Uh, which I thought is a really fascinating question because it's also one that I've had as I've been trying to uh, learn more about poetry uh, this year in 2020. That's my New Year's revolution. <laughs> my New Year's resolution. I said revolution. Um, I guess both are true. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> here's what uh, Cardinal says. Uh, the role of the artist in the struggle for people's art. That of giving the people a quality artistic product. We believe, or I would say anyway, I believe, in the phrase of Karl Marx, that it is a crime to give the people something materially inferior to perfection. So then, it is essential to try to give the best in artistic material, and that the people understand it in those terms. Not to create an inferior art so that all can understand, but rather to lift the people up to the heights of art. We don't want a society that only has social, economic, and political development, without it being accompanied by a spiritual and cultural, cultural development as well. Uh, I thought that was a really fascinating way of looking at this because uh, it's not about instrumentalizing art or uh, co-opting art or hijacking art or making art into a mouthpiece for the revolution of the party or whatever. Uh, it's saying that the revolution is also in service of people's uh, artistic abilities. Um, it's not just about giving people uh, a redistribution of wealth, although, of course, it, it certainly is that. Um, but it has to have these other things, too. And that last line that we actually don't want a society that only has equality in these ways um, without being accompanied by spiritual and cultural development is a really uh, profound point. And one that I think it can be hard for socialists, at least if you don't come to socialism through a sort of artistic or religious uh, avenue, um, it can be hard to see those as being important. Um, but I think that uh, Cardinal is right that uh, a, it's important for the revolution, and B, the revolution uh, helps those things to develop, uh, to become more themselves, uh, to become good on their own, and something that's not materially uh, inferior, um, mm. something deserving of the working class. Yeah, it's really good. It's um, again, you can see how there is maybe a resonance with socialist realism in like the overarching like goal of Cardinal's work, but at the same time, it's um, wholly different. <laughs> In, in its right. ends and sort of like uh, evaluation of what art is for. Right. Yeah, it's really fascinating, too, to think that Cardinal, as a priest and a poet, has this governmental position where he's trying to cultivate uh, a world where this is possible. Um, like, it is his day job, basically, for a long time. Eventually, the program gets cut, tragically, during the Contra War. Um, you can blame Ronald Reagan for that. Uh, but um, it was his job for a long time to help uh, the Nicaraguan people find their own artistic voice, uh, which is a really fascinating project and something that he was still involved in, um, you know, even recently. He's still alive, although I think he's, um, you know, he's quite old. So uh, what his involvement is anymore, I'm not sure, but he's been involved in like cultural centers in Nicaragua um, forever, basically, which is really a testament to his commitment to this kind of thing. Even when his job gets cut, he still feels like he's got to do this thing. Um, here's another poem. Can I read it? Is it okay? Yeah, that'd be All great. Right. All right. 
Uh, this is also from Pluriverse. It's called Unrighteous Mammon, Luke 16, 9. I'm just now realizing that I'm actually just only pulling out the Bible verse poems. That's what I've done here. <laughs> <laughs> you can take the boy out of youth group, but you can't take the youth group out of this boy. All right. In respect of riches, then, just or unjust, of goods, be they ill-gotten or well-gotten, all riches are unjust. All goods, ill-gotten. If not by you, by others. Your title deeds may be in order, but did you buy your land from its true owner? And he from its and he from its true owner, and the latter, though your title goes back to the grant of a king, was the land ever the king's? Has no one ever been deprived of it? And the money you receive legitimately now, from client or bank or national funds or from US Treasury, was it ill gotten at no point? Yet do not think that in the perfect communist state Christ's parables will have lost relevance or Luke 16, 9, have lost validity, and riches be no longer unjust, or that you will no longer have a duty to distribute riches. Here, Cardinal is kind of giving this like interesting meditation on um, primitive accumulation, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Um, that thing that you got, how did you get it? That's a good question that you should be asking yourself. Um, but <laughs> even more so at the end, he, uh, he kind of marries the idea of, you know, um, Jesus' words still make sense in the communist state. Um, they won't lose their validity. Yeah, that's right. And that idea, too, that uh, in a perfect communist state, there are still um, there are still reasons to be attentive to justice and injustice. I think that is a very good, like, liberation theology point as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other poems that we could read, and I encourage people to do it because, uh, I mean, we've only pulled out three here so far. Uh, but Cardinal has so many interesting themes and interesting ways of articulating basically all the stuff that we try to talk about on the show in ways that are far more <laughs> fascinating uh, than we could. Um, but I think uh, one of the most interesting things is toward the end of his, uh, or I guess like the more recent kind of stuff that he's been doing, um, he doesn't move away from politics, but he moves toward uh, talking about science and the universe, like I said earlier, in this kind of cosmic vision um, and there's a ton of fascinating stuff in there. Uh, he has a, a extremely long poem that's like hundreds of pages long, uh, dedicated to sorting this stuff out. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to think about, uh, in those themes as well that are worth pulling out. So just to give you maybe an idea of how, uh, how all these things come together for Cardinal, I think this is a really fascinating, uh, meditation on certain themes in uh, Marxism uh, that pull all this stuff together. So this is in the context of a, a super long poem, like I just said about uh, science, um, but I'll just read a part of it. So he says this, Materialist we are, yet it so happened that matter wasn't solid, but interactions of fields of energy. The wave is not a real wave, but of probabilities. Quantum mechanics, about which Feynman says no one understands. We cannot observe naked reality. The observation is part of what's observed. Subject and object, who can separate them for us? The apple is on the table and in the mind. And the woman who cuts the apple? Well, yes, this matter of ours in which an electron not observed is unreal, in which a prerequisite of reality is observing it, and also the mind as a property of matter. Materialism? When we don't even know what matter is. And consciousness is not the body's atoms, since the, since the atoms last such a short time in the body. I was 20 once, when forever appears in the equation, it is the black hole. Black hole in which time stands still and space extends into infinity. Energy and electricity are realities, uh, and we don't know what they are. Um, he goes on to continue to sort of draw these kind of scientific uh, meditations into religious imaginaries too, uh, but I just thought that idea uh, of materialism actually committing yourself to a much weirder world that we live in is a good example of how that exteriorismo that we were talking about earlier doesn't preclude Cardinal from having these kind of wild uh, flights of poetic fancy in his own way, uh, but they actually draw him into a more interesting relationship to uh, the strangeness that is the world around us. Um, and it's a good kind of demonstration, too, of how, Card how Cardinal wants his poetry to get people to uh, engage with the world around them. Um, and he does that as a materialist who's nevertheless also a, a deeply committed Christian. Um, so just a lot of like themes on the show, I think, that come out uh, are really captured by what Cardinal's project is trying to do. That's good. Well, 
Um, any closing thoughts on Cardinal? What does he mean for us right now? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, well, he's still alive, which is great. Um, I think it's important to recognize that we're not that far away from people like this, right? Like this isn't um, a person who is just lost to history, maybe in a way that when you read people like Karl Marx, they could feel lost to history or something. Uh, but he's a person who's still around, you know, nearly like 100 years old almost. I think he's 95. Um, but somebody who is really uh, still kind of carrying the torch, even though his relationship to all these things has changed. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, somebody who is who is there for so much history and is still kind of around now, which again testifies to just how close we are to all this stuff. Yeah, good point. Um, uh, what about you? Well, uh, my big takeaway from this is a lot dumber than yours. Um, I spent you know six years of grad school or whatever, whatever it actually was in retrospect, like reading philosophy and history and like doing some media studies stuff. And I didn't take one damn second to stop and read poetry. And that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, so now that I'm, I'm past all of that and I've read all of the philosophy there is, there's no more left for me. What could I possibly read? Who knows? And now I can read poetry and it's good. And if you, if you, if you're like me, I don't know, maybe you are. And you're in grad school and you're reading Kant or whatever. Stop. Just don't do it anymore and read poetry instead. <laughs> uh, it's good. It's a good idea. Just just do it for yourself. Make 2020 the year that you read poetry. That's a that's a thing you could do. It's true. Maybe at the end we'll even try to write some. Who knows? Nope. I won't. I, I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just put it on Reddit. Oh, well, you know what? I've uh, I'm actually already a very accomplished poet. Then <laughs> <laughs> uh, a Reddit poet laureate. Here I am, <laughs> Reddit making all of the good poems. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash the Magnificast. You can give us some of your bucks. We really appreciate uh, those of you that do. You can also find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can email us at the Magnificast at gmail.com. We've got a Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. Uh, you can get in on that, uh, chat with other folks, I guess. Who knows? Maybe we'll post some poetry in there. Uh, you can also find these books that we were just talking about by Ernesto Cardinal on archive.org. That's something I mentioned earlier. Uh, our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I wanna get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.